Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Hey, we're going to be jumping in this time of the word, and uh, I know you already have your you know, sheets out. For those of you online, you can either uh, hit the top or the bottom, depending on the format of your, what you're watching, there's a message note sheet. You can click on there and choose your favorite format. So if you guys are ready to go, uh, we're going to pray. Uh, we also want to be praying for uh, what's happening in the land of Israel right now, so just join me in prayer. So Father, we uh, first of all just come, we're so thankful to be here and for the peace that we experience right now uh, in our area. And Father, our hearts go out to those uh, in Israel right now, um, those in both sides of the conflict for the suffering there. And so, Father, we just pray that you would, you would be there. I pray, Lord, especially for the, the leaders that are making strategic decisions right now. Father, we pray that you give them great wisdom. Um, and Father, we just pray that, you know, for all those who are suffering, uh, their tremendous loss, that you would just, you would use this to draw people to yourself. And Father, we, we pray that prayer that's always, always appropriate, that, uh, that in this situation that your, your kingdom would come, that your name would be honored, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Father, as we come before you now as a church and we come to your word, I just pray, Lord, that you would be opening up your scripture to us like the psalm says, open the eyes of my heart that I might see beautiful things from your law. I pray that you'd be with me, you'd strengthen me, I pray my words would be clear, your spirit would be strong upon me. And I pray that as a church, we'd gather around your word and that we'd hear what the, what the spirit is saying to the church at Rocky Peak. We pray this in your name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, today we're continuing our series. It's called The Gospel of God. And for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome. Uh, typically, for those of you who are regulars here, you know that we usually start with a story that becomes an illustration later on, but this, once again, is one of those passages, there's a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump in. But for, I know, I know, I'm so sorry, you know, but um, it just, I had one, but it didn't make the cut. So anyway, <laughs> for those of you who are brand new, I always like this to take just a couple of minutes uh, and just kind of bring you up to speed, because every week we have newcomers, people that God's bringing, and so... Uh, this series uh, is an in-depth study of probably the most important letter ever written in the history of the world, no exaggeration. Uh, it's part of the second part of our Bible. It's what we call the New Testament. Uh, it's written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul, or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers, that most of whom he's never met. They live in the capital city of the Roman Empire in Rome itself. It's about a million people at this time. And he's planning to go and visit them soon. And so he's kind of writing, introducing his message. And so we call this letter the letter to the Romans. And in the very first opening verse, uh, Paul kind of puts the topic on the table for the whole message, what he calls the gospel of God, which is kind of big picture story of God's rescue mission uh, of our race. Now, if you've been here, the last uh, six weeks or so, I don't know how long it's been, but we have jumped into the main body of this letter that starts in chapter 1 and verse 18. And what we saw in, the, kind of the, in, in chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1, is that, that Paul says that as a race, we are created to be in fellowship with God. We are created to, to be in relationship, to, to uh, be like him, and so on. But that as a race that we've rebelled against his leadership in our lives, we wanted to run our own lives and as a result, we've kind of rejected the truth that God has revealed to us in creation. And so as a result, the lights have gone out on us uh, spiritually, uh, uh, intellectually, uh, emotionally, um, uh, relationally, and so on. 
And, and so the end result is that our race has been plunged into this downward cycle that I've called the death cycle, right? That starts with spiritual confusion about who God is and then moves on to uh, sexual confusion, who we are, and then ends in social chaos that Dre talked about last week. And so with that, we wrapped up uh, Paul's kind of introductory opening indictment against the human race. Well, today he's going to continue kind of phase two of that indictment, and we're going to break into chapter two. Now, we're going to be moving much faster from this point on, uh, and so today we're covering the first half of chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up, turn on, let's go to that section of your note sheet that says, the gospel of God, the final judgment. Now, You'll notice that there's four bullets in this section. And what I want to do is before we jump in and tackle the actual passage, I, I want to introduce four key concepts, uh, four big, big picture ideas that Paul is going to be referring to in this passage. Um, this passage is more complex. It's more dense. Uh, it assumes we know more about first century uh, life and religious life and so on. And so... Um, uh, rather than kind of going through and having to stop every other word and explain something, I just want to explain some of the big things we're going to see, and then we'll be able to move through uh, pretty rapidly. So let's, let's jump in. So let's talk about the indictment. If we're going to understand what's happening in chapter 2, we need to understand what Paul is doing in chapters 1 through 3. And basically what he's doing is he's bringing an indictment, almost like a prosecuting attorney, he's bringing his indictment against the human race. So no matter what kind of person, what your spiritual background, what your lifestyle, uh, that we have all rebelled against our creator. We've all rejected the truth that God has revealed. And so we're all under the judgment, right? So that's what chapter one through three is gonna be about. And so when we get to chapter three, if we jump ahead there in your note sheet, you'll see that this is how, this is where he's going. Like, a, like an attorney, again, he's laying out the evidence, and in, in chapter three and verse nine, he begins his summation, right? Like a, before he, he sends it to the jury, so to speak. And so this is how it ends in three, nine. He says, what then shall we conclude? I mean, he's kind of laid out his argument, and he says, what shall we conclude? He says, and this is what the first three chapters have been about. He says, for we have all, we have already made the charge, like in chapters one and two, We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Right? So not just that we have sinned, but we are under the power. We're enslaved to sin as a race. Now, if you go down to the next verse, further on in this, as he's kind of wrapping things up, he says, as his famous verse, for all have sinned and all fall short of what? So catch, underline that phrase, glory of God, because this is what we're going to learn today. You and I were created for glory. We were created to be like our creator and to reflect his glory. And this is what we've lost through the rebellion. And so the story of the gospel is how God is restoring the glory you know, to our race. And so, so, chapter, um, one through, so chapter two is the next step of this indictment that, is, that Paul is bringing against the entire human race, right? That's, and that, this is where it's leading to that we all stand guilty before the court of heaven, right? Now, uh, next bullet. Next bullet is who is he talking to or the audience? Like, who is he addressing in this passage? Well, basically, he's addressing two different kinds of what you might call self-righteous people, right? So uh, one kind of self-righteous person, very likely, is sort of the, the person 
that is a Gentile. Um, and as Paul is kind of laying out his indictment in chapter one, this person's saying, go get them, Paul. You are right on the money. It's like this sinful race uh, that's a Gentile race is into idolatry. It's into sexual immorality, sexual perversion. Uh, God is absolutely right to bring judgment, but I'm of a different sort. I'm cut from a different cloth. Um, Maybe I'm a Gentile philosopher, like a Stoic philosopher, right? Who, um, who would kind of live by, doesn't, doesn't participate in idolatry, doesn't participate in sexual immorality, lives by a higher set. Maybe he's, he's referring to Jews. By the end of the chapter, he's clearly referring to Jews that say, yeah, that's how the Gentiles are, but that's not how we are. We're, we're the people of God. And so, so yeah, we, we get, that's right. We're, we're 100% with you, but we are a different breed, all right? And so Paul is going to be bringing his indictment and saying, hey, not so fast. Not so fast, right? The, third, the third, um, third bullet is called the diatribe. And you say, what's a diatribe? Well, a diatribe was an ancient technique, teaching technique that was very popular. Paul's going to use it often in Romans. And so here's how it works. And a diatribe is basically an imaginary conversation between the author um, and someone in the crowd who is objecting to his teaching, right? So, so Paul is going to be using this technique often. So it's a very effective technique because uh, speakers would use it in ancient times, writers would use it, and they basically, they kind of, they, they give their point, like Paul did in Romans chapter one, you know, that we're all under the wrath, and then he's ima- there's an imaginary person, the crowd is saying, hey, but wait a second, what about this, or what about that? and it allows him to respond to those objections. And so it's just a very creative way of teaching. And of course, uh, though, though these are fictional conversations we're gonna see in, uh, in Romans, uh, they're actually based on real life conversations and debates that Paul would have like when he's in the Jewish synagogues with Jews or when he's uh, sharing Christ in the public square with Greek philosophers, okay? Now, what's the main point? The last point, the, the main, what's Paul's main point? The main point he's going to say is at the end of time, we are all going to go one-on-one with Jesus Christ. And he says that at the judgment, the criteria Jesus is going to use to evaluate our lives is not based on just what we believed was right, what we claimed to be right, kind of what we claimed was our intentions, what we meant to do, what we wanted to do, that he's going to base the judgment on what we actually did, okay? So this is going to be, uh, so, so the, these are going to be the four things that we're going to see in this passage. So with that as an intro, we should be able to move through it very rapidly now, and you should be able to follow along. So here we go. So uh, he starts off with this imaginary conversation. What's the very first word? You, you. okay? Well, got it? I got it? We had 13 people who knew the answer. All right. The very first word is what? You, so catch this, he's, he's no longer talking, he's saying you, he's talking to an imaginary person, right? This is the beginning of the diatribe. He says, you therefore who have, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. So he's talking to the person in the crowd who has listened to his indictment of the, of the human race in chapter one and saying, yes, Paul, you're absolutely right, they deserve the judgment. But he says, wait, not so fast, you you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else for, and here's the reason, for whatever point you judge another, 
You are what? You're condemning yourself. Now, why? He says, because you who pass judgment do what? The same same things. Now, of course, he's not saying that this person that he's talking to us, that they're they're necessarily, like they're participating in idolatry, like chapter one, or they're participating in sexual perversion, like chapter one. But if you remember, at the end of chapter one, the last stage of this downward spiral was this broken relationships. You remember that? And if you remember that long list, I mean, if you read that as a human being and you don't find yourself in there, there's something wrong with you. You're in denial, right? We've all, we've all done those sorts of things. And so Paul says, hey, not so fast. You may not have done these kind of obvious gross sins, but this is very much your, your evil heart has been shown here. And he says, now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, like in chapter one, is based on truth. I mean, we all agreed that God was righteous to bring judgment. He says, so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Just a quick sidebar here. This is one of the biggest mistakes we can make in our spiritual life is that sometimes we're being tempted to do something that's truly evil or wrong. We know the Bible's super clear about and we, But we finally give in to the temptation. And there's a little bit of fear. Oh, no, all hell's going to break loose when I do this. But we go ahead and do it, and nothing happens. And we think, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. And so we mistake the kindness and the patience of God for that it's okay. But when we do that, we're just storing up judgment. We're storing up, you know, we're storing up judgment and, and uh, kind of his discipline for us. Anyway, so he says in verse 5, he says, but, you know, so instead of repenting uh, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart. And here, like, let's picture who he's talking to. Remember, remember um, this would be the Apostle Paul before he became a, a follower of Jesus, do you, do you remember how, remember in Jesus' ministry that how his greatest enemies were the religious people, right? They, and, and Jesus said, hey, you keep the outside of the cup clean, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. Inside you're full of every kind of wickedness. And so the, if you think of like the Pharisees, most of the Pharisees when Jesus was, was there, that they would be an example of a self-righteous uh, type of person. The Apostle Paul, this was how he saw himself. Remember in Philippians 3, he says, before he came to Jesus, he says, like, he had all the right credentials, that he was born into the the nation of Israel. He was one of the chosen people, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, the official sign, I'm in. He was part of the tribe of Benjamin, one one of the respected tribes. He said, according to the righteousness in the law, flawless. And so this is kind of how he would have seen himself. Like, I don't need a savior from my sin, I mean, I've, I've lived up to these standards, and, and so, yeah, those Gentiles in chapter one, yeah, God's wrath, but I'm not gonna be part of that. And so he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, verse five, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Notice that word wrath. Remember chapter one, we, we learned that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, and that's happening in real time. Like right now, that when we reject the truth, we, we go the wrong path, that we pay a price for that right here and now. 
But now he's starting to talk about the wrath that will come at the end of time. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. So in the Old Testament, the prophets of Israel, when they would talk about the day of judgment, they would often refer to it as the day of the Lord. And Paul is using that language here, the day. Notice how he keeps referring to the day throughout this passage. And so he says, um, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And now he says, God will repay each person according to what he's done. Now notice there's quotes around this. So this is something that the Bible teaches from beginning to end that we're going to be judged based on what we do, not on our intentions. He's quoting here, here's a quote, um, but uh, this, we're not sure exactly where he's quoting from. There's, uh, this is said in Psalms, it's said in Proverbs. In fact, I want you to look back on your note sheet. If you look back to uh, the section of, where is it here? Yeah, the last section, the one about uh, the main point. You look at that Jeremiah 7. This would be a great example of what the Bible has taught, what the prophets said in Jeremiah 17, that it says, I the Lord, and we see Lord in all caps, who's that? Yahweh. Yahweh, good. So I the Lord, Yahweh, I search the heart and I examine the mind. I want you to underline that. What we're going to see later in this passage in Romans is Paul says, is that the final judgment that God is going to reveal the secrets of each of our hearts? And so he says, I search the heart and I examine the mind to reward each person according to their what? Their conduct. Again, what they've done and according to what their deeds, what? Deserve. And so Paul is just going back to these kinds of passages, all the teaching that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus taught this as well. We'll see that later. And saying, this will be the standard, that God will repay each person according to what they've done. He says, so here, so for example, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. I love that. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality that they would receive this honor, glory, and immortality at the end of time, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, just think, think about themselves, and who catch us, reject the truth. Remember, that was the core sin of chapter one, that we rejected the truth because we didn't like what it required or revealed. And we follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. And now just to make sure we got it, he's going to say it again, but in reverse order. He says, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, uh, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So this is interesting. Scholars will debate this. Who is Paul talking to at the beginning in this first part of chapter two? Is he talking to the Gentile person, maybe the Stoic philosopher, that sort of person who sees himself as a cut above? Or is he talking to Jews? Or is he talking to both? And I think you can kind of argue it either way, but, but what I want you to catch here is if he's talking to Stoic philosophers, if he's talking to the, the Gentile who lives by a higher standard, that at this point, if you're a Jew, you have just become very nervous. Because remember this, in the first century, most Jews saw themselves like Paul. They saw themselves as, hey, the Gentiles, they're not going to be part of the kingdom, but we're Jews. We're chosen people. And that 
that we will be part of the kingdom, either automatically or we'll be judged, but we'll be judged by a different standard. We'll be showing, we'll have like a favored status. And so Paul is like, like there's a shot over the bow. If you're a Jew in the crowd, you're getting nervous right now. He's kind of letting you know that, no, no, there is no favored status at the judgment. And so he says, um, he says uh, in verse nine, there'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but there'll be glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the judge, Gentile. And here's the point, for God doesn't show what? Doesn't show, there's like, we're all gonna be judged based on what we've done. And so he says, okay, so how are the Gentiles gonna be judged? He says, well, all who sin apart from the law, so this would be Gentiles, they don't have the law of God, they will perish apart from the law. And you say, well, how is that fair? They don't have a Bible, they didn't know any better. He'll get to that in a minute, he'll come back. But he said, all who sin under the law, that would be Jews, will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. You may have grown up in the synagogue, you know the law, you've memorized the law. But it's not those who hear the law who are righteous, but it's those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. Now he comes back to this issue, what, what about the Gentiles? They've never had the law, how can they be judged? He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature, underline these few words, by nature, like by instinct, by, um, by intuition, right? They do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the written law. This is powerful. This is what we call in theology natural law. Right? So what Paul is saying is that, that uh, you remember, he's kind of building on what we learned back in chapter one. Remember, in chapter one, Paul said the core sin of the human race was that we've rejected the truth about God that he's revealed in creation. But what is the high point of the creation? It's a human race. And what he's saying here is that God has written his moral law on our hearts, every human being. This is why for the vast majority of people, but not everyone, that when you see like what Hamas did, that everyone knows that's wrong. Even if you're an atheist, even like, there's very little disagreement, that's wrong. And so this is very interesting because one thing people will often say is they'll say, well, you know, all religions lead to the same place. They all teach the same thing. But if you've ever studied world religions, you know, that's categorically false. They don't, they teach extremely different things about who God is, about who we are and the path of life or the path of salvation. But catch this, here's where they're similar. They have very similar moral codes. And Paul says there's a reason for that that God has written it on the human heart. And just a quick sidebar, this is one of the reasons our culture is in such confusion right now. Because up until recently, pretty much everyone, you know, I mean recently, in a historical sense, everyone believed like in natural law. This was a common thing in the Western world. So the, the concept of, you know, uh, but what happened is when, as a culture, we bought into naturalism, kind of a worldview that says that hey, everything you see is a result of billions of years of random accidents, that that removes natural law. There's no creator, and so there is no human nature. And so now we say that, oh, all these things that we've traditionally believed were right, oh, they're just like social constructs. But the reality is there's a reason why never in the history of the human race has marriage been between two men or two women. 
because everyone knew naturally that th there may have been homosexual activity, but there was no marriage. Everyone knew it's just against nature. Just look at our bodies, right? But one of the reasons we're in such confusion is because as a culture, we've not only rejected, say, the God of the Bible, we've rejected natural law. And, this, and when we, you lose that, you lose your brain. You lose your mind, right? You lose kind of the very truths that God has hardwired into creation. All right, so anyway, so Paul says that that's how they'll be judged. They won't be judged on what they don't know. They'll be judged on what they do know, what God has written in their heart. So in verse 15, he says, they show, he's talking about the Gentiles, that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them at other times even defending them. And he says, and this will take place on the day when God judges people's what? Secrets through whom? Through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares, okay? So very uh, tight, dense writing, but what he's saying is that at the end of time, those who have not been exposed to the word, have not been, uh, in his time, they didn't know the law, he says that they will not be judged on what they didn't know. They'll be judged on what they have known, what God has written in their hearts. And he says that the final judgment, uh, their thoughts will be at times defending them. Hey, I did the right thing there. At other times accusing them. Oh, yeah, I knew that was wrong. Or even here, yeah, I rationalized that. That I, I really did know it was wrong. And he says this will all happen on this final day, this day of judgment when God judges uh, every single person who's ever lived through Jesus Christ as his gospel declares. Right? So here's what I want to do. I want to highlight two big picture truths that flow out of this passage today and then come back and ask one really important question. So, so here's the first truth. There in your note sheet, you have the section of the gospel of God, the day of the Lord. And so let's jump in number one. So number one, the day is real. <laughs> this teaching that Paul's giving you, Paul says, hey, hey, part of the story, the part of the big picture story of our race is at the end of time, every human being who has ever lived is going to stand before the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and be evaluated on their life. That's a huge part of our story. Now, Look what he says in Romans 2.16. He says, um, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets. So not just what we've done, but even the motives, the secrets of our heart through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So here's what I want you to catch. This is a, this is a huge part of our story, the gospel of God, that there will be a day when we all go before him to be judged, every person that's ever lived. And this is something the prophets said. It's something that Jesus said. It's something that Paul says. It's something that Peter says. It's something that's throughout the Bible from beginning to end. It's one of the most important facts about the story that we're living. Now, I want to show you this from Jesus uh, himself, just to kind of uh, just give you an example. So in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the religious leader. He's just healed a man on the Sabbath. They're very upset about this because he's broken their law. And so he's giving them some teaching, and he says, the Father has given him, talking about himself, talking about Jesus, he says, the Father has given him authority to judge because he is the what? Right, so as the God-man, Jesus is, is best prepared to judge 
because he's both God and yet he's been one of us. He knows what it's like to be human. And so, so God has delegated, the Father has delegated all judgment to the Son. And so look what he says next. He says, do not be amazed. Now, uh, it's likely we won't be amazed at what he's about to say because we're in the 21st century and we're used to reading things like this and we think of Jesus a certain way. I want to take you back in time. You're standing in the crowd in Jerusalem. This prophet from Kansas, right? This guy from the north, from Galilee, from the uncouth people, from the people with the accent. You know, uh, this, this, this guy that does miracles is kind of just super different from the backwaters uh, that, yeah, maybe he's a prophet. So you, if you're there in the crowd, you're either probably like, yeah, I think he's a real prophet, uh, or uh, maybe if you're like, no, he's a false prophet, right? That's kind of the mindset. And in that mindset, I want you to hear like this claim he's making, which is so bold and so audacious that if he's not who he claims to be, he's a crazy man, all right? So he says, for the time is coming, he says, do not be amazed, because they would be. A time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Like, are you, are you catching that? Jesus says, hey, there's gonna come a day when every person who's ever lived in the history of the world, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Cush, all through, when every person who's ever lived, uh, I'm going to say come out, and every person who's ever lived is coming out. Amen. That's quite the claim. Right? That's quite the claim. It's interesting. You remember when Jesus healed Lazarus, or raised Lazarus from the dead. Do you remember what he said? He said, Lazarus, come out. And it's been said, it's a good thing he said Lazarus. <laughs> and look what he says. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. And catch this, those who have done what? What is good will rise to live, just what Paul said, right? And those who have done what's evil will rise to be condemned, right? So what I want you to catch is this is a huge part of the story we're all living in. That there is a day coming at the end of time where every one of us, believers or not, will go one-on-one with Jesus. This is a huge part of our story. And Paul says, this is my gospel. Now, one of the things I've talked to you throughout this series is often today we truncate the gospel. We, we pare it down. We reduce it. Uh, like, for example, uh, maybe, you know, uh, sometimes someone will, will say, well, what, what's the gospel? And we'll say, well, here's the gospel, that God loves you, he's got a wonderful plan for your life, and that he has died for you, and if you believe in him uh, and trust him with your life, that then you'll have eternal life, right? And you say, well, isn't that true? And I would say, well, properly understood, yes, but it's missing a key part of the story because the rest of the story is that as a race, we are all under the wrath of God. 
and that without Jesus, we're all gonna be condemned. This is why the gospel is both invitation and command. And so this is a huge part of our story that there's gonna come this day when the entire human race is going to be judged. The day is real. Number two, the second principle that Paul lays out here, we just saw Jesus teach this, and we'll talk about this, we'll nuance it, but it goes like this, that judgment is based on the lives we live. And this is the big point that Paul is making, right? He's talking to these self-righteous people who see themselves as a cut of God cut above. Maybe they're Gentiles following a, a, like a, a higher philosophy like Stoicism. Uh, maybe they're Jews who see themselves as part of the chosen race and therefore automatically in. But his big point is, it's not what we say, it's what we do. And he says, so the, the point he's making is that how will you get off at the judgment? How will you escape the wrath of God when you condemn people but you do the same things? Right? So his big point is that God will God is going to evaluate us based on what we've actually done, not what we intend to do. You know how we'll say this? Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Well, you know, uh, if we're choosing to do the wrong thing, then what we meant to do doesn't really matter. Like we chose the wrong, right? Um, And so um, it's interesting because we we know where this story is going. And this is one of the reasons I started with this first bullet, the indictment. We know where this first three chapters are going. What Paul is doing is he's showing that it doesn't matter our background, our spiritual journey, that apart from Jesus, we're all fall short of the glory of God. That's what he's showing in these first three chapters. Um, but what's interesting is, he, is then, then how, how he lays this out there on your note sheet. In Romans 2, look again at what he says. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, reject the truth, follow it, there'll be wrath and anger. And so so what's interesting about this passage is I want you to pretend you don't know where this story is going. I want you to pretend you've never read chapter 3. You haven't got to the part that says, we've already made the charge that all Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. We've not got to the part that says, we've all fallen short of the glory. of. We've gotten got the, we haven't got there yet. So we're in chapter two, and we come along, and Paul makes this statement, and you read it, and doesn't it sound to you like there are two kinds of people in life? There's people who do good and there's people who do evil and people who do good will get eternal life and people who do bad won't. And if this is all we had, then we'd say, okay, I guess we just need to do good. But we know that's not where Paul's going. We know that that's not what he's saying because we've seen the end of where he's going. So the question is, why does he say it like this? And it's really interesting because scholars will debate this and there'll be many different theories. But a couple of the most popular, one of the theories would be, I would call it the hypothetical theory. And what what Paul is doing is he's saying, hey, this is the way it works. We all come before God. Those who've done 
the right thing their whole life will get in. Those who have done the wrong thing won't. And that's actually true. It's just that none of us can do the right thing. So it's hypothetically true that if anyone did this, that they would get in. But, you know, he's going to go on to show none of us can't, right? So that's one way of handling it. But there's another way that's more interesting to me, and I tend to lean towards, is that as we go into Romans, we know where the story is going. These first three chapters, he's going to show that we're a fallen race, that we've all fallen short, we're all under the wrath of God. And that's why Messiah had to come and die for us as a sacrifice of atonement for our sin so that we could be forgiven and enter into relationship with God, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus has done. But here's the thing. The story of the gospel, of course, doesn't stop there. The story of the gospel goes on is that when we are come to Christ, come to God through Christ, we become adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. And that when we're adopted, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to live the lives we were created to live. And guess what? Those lives are lives that persistently do good and seek glory and honor and immortality. You see, that that the gospel is much more than, hey, you're saved, and now you go to heaven when you die. No, the gospel, you're saved, and so now you've entered this new relationship so you can be transformed and be the person you're created to be, and that by the power of the Spirit, you can live the life you're created to live, and you can actually regain the glory that we were created for. Whichever way you take it, so one, well, let me, one more thing. One of the things that we see in Paul's writings is he often writes like a great novelist, especially in a long passage like Romans. And you know, if you're, re- you're reading a great novel, the, a, a gifted novelist will often give hints early on throughout the book of where the story is going. But you probably won't pick them up until the end of the story. And once you see where the story is going, you look back and say, oh, it was there all along. It's like this string of pearls, and it just makes it much richer. Paul often does that. He often drops hints early on of where this story is going. We'll see it next week at the end of chapter two as well. Um, And so so I I tend to believe that Paul is, whatever else he's doing, he's kind of laying out the standard, but he's giving us a little bit of a hint of where this story is going. That that this is what it means in Paul's mind to be a Christian. It's It's to be someone who's been reconciled with God to be someone who lives a life that's persistently doing good, seeking the glory and honor and immortality. Now, this all leads to one important question there in your note sheet. The gospel of God, glory, honor, and immortality. This is where we're going to take the cookies and put them on the bottom shelf. We're getting very practical here. And and here I have a question for you. I'm going to give it to you, then we're going to unpack it. What are you pursuing? What are you pursuing? What Paul does in this passage, he, he lays out two paths in life. He says, one path in life is to, to live life uh, to be self-seeking, to live for ourselves, uh, and to reject the truth about who God is and who we are, kind of deny truth, and to do evil. He says, the other path is to live a life that's persistently doing good, seeking glory, honor, and immortality when that day comes. And so the question is, in your life, um, what are you pursuing? To what extent are you pursuing glory, honor, and immortality 
on that day. And I think this is one of the places where, again, we've often truncated the gospel. Remember that Paul says, this is part of my gospel, right? This, this day. You can't really understand the gospel if you don't understand where the story is going. Right? And so I think that often that we look at our salvation, we look at the gospel in this way that, well, I'm saved now, and so uh, now I get in. And that's how the story is. So I'm, I'm saved now, and so I'm going to get in when, when Jesus comes or when I go to be with Jesus, that I get in. I'll be part of eternal life. And what we fail to realize is, yes, the way we get in is through the death of Christ, right? Him alone, right? But what we forget is that when we get in, we become sons and daughters of the living God. We become royal princes and princesses in the kingdom. And as such, we are invited to rule with God in his kingdom. And that each of us has a kingdom we rule over. And that there is a high calling on your life and my life to rise up and to live for glory and honor and immortality and be who we are created to be, to live for this glory. And of course, this is what we see in all throughout the Bible, right? We saw it in Jeremiah. Uh, we saw it in Jesus, you know, those who rise for good and bad. You remember Jesus taught this in the parable of the talents, right? Jesus taught this constantly. He often talked about rewards. He said, hey, don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store up uh, treasure in heaven. Right? He talked about this. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's better to enter into life maimed than to miss out and to, to, to uh, end up in eternity in hell. Right? Uh, he talked about this. Hey, blessed are you when, when you're persecuted for my name because Great is your reward in heaven. He constantly challenged us in the context of eternity and that day. And so we see this throughout the, throughout the Bible, throughout the, uh, throughout the teaching of Jesus for sure, but we see it also often in Paul. And one of the most powerful passages is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9 and 10. And I want, I want you to read this with me. So Paul is talking and he says, we make it our goal to what? All right? So he's talking about this whole salvation experience in chapter five, and he says, hey, we make it our goal to please him. So my, my question was, you know, who, what are you pursuing? Another way of asking that is, who are you trying to please? What is your deepest passion in life? Who are you trying to please? And what the New Testament would say, would Jesus, if there's anyone or anything more important to you than pleasing Jesus, then you're not living for glory, honor, and immortality. <clears throat> you're living for something less. <clears throat> we make it our goal to please him. Why? Look, look at his motivation. Why? Because we must all appear <clears throat> before the judgment seat of Christ. Now remember, he's talking to Christians here. This letter is to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each of us may receive what is due us. Notice two words, the word each. <laughs> That's every one of us in this room. And what is due us. It's a 
the word in Greek is komisitai. It's, it's a word for like wages being paid. You know, like, like what, what is due us. Cassius said, each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body. And catch this, whether good or bad. How many of you have heard this teaching that when Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He just sees his son. Right? Whoever came up with that hadn't read this verse. That when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, it's a real relationship. It's not a fake relationship. It's real. And we become sons and daughters of the king. And this is why Jesus said, hey, hey, live wisely. Like, live your life for the things that really matter. Like, when it comes to this, when it comes to that, you know, it's like, like live for that day. Like, on that day, what's truly important in life is going to be revealed that everything else is going to be burned up, like wood, hay, and stubble. So, hey, live this day for that day. And so, Paul says, hey, I want you to catch the gravity, the gravitas of this statement. What Paul is saying is that every one of us in this room is going to go one-on-one with Jesus at the end of time. And we can't bring a friend. Like, we can't, like, hey, well, Jesus, can I bring my wife? Because... Um, you know, she's a little bit more spiritual than I am. And, um, you know, you said we're one, right? Like, get the credit, right? Like, you can't take your life group leader, right? Uh, you can't take your pastor and have your pastor say, yeah, I know that it doesn't look like he did much, but uh, he had a good heart, you know? Are you with me? It's like, we're going to go, and the secrets of our heart are going to be revealed, and it's just you and, you and Jesus. And at that moment, it's going to become crystal clear what's important and what's not. And so, so, what, so are you living this day for that day? Hey, how about, what is your goal in life? Who are you trying to, the way you handle your finances, are you trying to please Jesus? Or do you have another goal? Uh, hey, the way you handle your relationships is your number one goal to please Jesus in the way, hey, that dating relationship is my number one passion. I want to please Jesus. That's it. That's bottom line for me. Lord, you show me what to do, right? Uh, hey, what about our sexuality? Hey, I, I don't care what this world, like my number one passion is to please Jesus in the way that I handle my body. How about my relationships, the way I approach my marriage? the way that I raise my children, the way I approach my career, the way that I, the priorities, the way I parcel out my time, the way I spend time with him or don't is my number one passion in life to please him and to pursue the things that will lead to glory and honor. You know, last night I was up here and I thought of a quote from C.S. Lewis. I don't have it memorized and so I just kind of summarized it but it was beautiful. One of our elders was here, and he texted me afterwards, like, thanks for the message. He said, that's one of my favorite Lewis quotes. And so um, he says, here's how it really goes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I want to put it on the screen. This is powerful. He's, 
Lewis says, it, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer, offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isn't that powerful? All through the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles are challenging us, hey, don't waste your life. Invest your life in what really matters. I think of Colossians 1, Paul says, if you've been raised up with Christ, and as believers we have, right? If you've been raised up with Christ, he said, seek the things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. He says, um, think, focus on things above, not on the things of earth. He said, for you have died. As a believer, you've died to your old life. You've died. And he said, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And he says, and when Christ is revealed at the end of time, when Christ is revealed, who is your life? Then you will be revealed with him in glory. And so the question is, what are you pursuing? Who are you trying to please? And if it's anything less than your number one passion in life is to please Jesus, then to that extent, you're not living for glory and honor and immortality. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we come before you as a church, and these are heavy things. It's like gravitas, it's, but it's this gravitas that gives our life meaning and purpose, that our lives actually matter, that what we do actually matters. It's going to matter forever, and that gives us meaning and purpose and motivation. And so, Lord, as we come today to celebrate your supper, my mind goes back to what the Apostle Paul said that every time we eat of the, of the bread, every time we partake of the cup, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That every time that we have communion, we're looking back on what you did to rescue us, but we're looking forward to your coming. And that we, leave, we live in between those two things. And this is the life you've given. We're called for this generation that we would not waste our life, that we would not invest our life like a child playing in the slums who doesn't want to leave the mud castles is making, not realizing that this new life you've called us to, this life, this life to the full, is a life that will lead to an incredible joy and will lead to the vacation by the sea forever. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to the table today, that we would humble ourselves before you receive the gift of forgiveness of sins to your cross, but we would also aspire to recommit ourselves to live for what really matters, for glory, honor, and immortality. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said,